And tonight I'd like to speak about the list, the listless mind, listless mind. <clears throat> Already uh, within the day, we have seen the parade of mental states, right? It's like a just like a parade, like one of the downtown Seattle parades that go on periodically. You sit there and from the street corner watch virtually every configuration of our lives pass by and each one has a certainty and a conviction when we're in it that is absolute. It offers... Hopelessness offers no hope. (laughs) That's what it does. That's how it configures the world. Anger offers no kindness. That's the way it is. That's what it says. That's the way it holds life in that moment. Restlessness holds no calm. Everyone, every state of mind holds holds that as the state of the state of things, the state of things. And yet if you wait at the street corner long enough, the next parade, the next float comes by, doesn't it? Just as convincing, just as absolute, and just as determined in its conviction. And it is amazing to me that we can be so Um, Even the most aware of us can know we're watching a parade and yet be totally lost in those states of mind, totally submerged in them when when they occur. And I mean, that's what we're doing here is we're freeing ourselves up from the conviction that each state of mind holds. And yet, you can, you can see how deep the pattern goes uh, because it uh, it gives us very little air to breathe. There's very little air to breathe when each of these states of mind arise. And each uh, each state of mind. Uh, has a story and a relationship to life that unfolds and our place within that story and our understanding uh, and our um, reasonable logic for why this state has its point and its reality given these factors that arose and the difficulty I'm having, no wonder I'm depressed. And so it has a relationship outside of just it being a state because it brings in a whole story of unfolding that includes virtually the whole world. But what is freedom? See, what's, what's bare life? What is life free of 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 investment, what does it look like? 
What does what does life look like when it's free? When those states of mind do not throw the consciousness off, because if we're to evolve into a new state of consciousness, this new state of being, human beings, this species, this is where the brunt of the work is at the emotional attitudinal level. And I don't mean changing attitudes to feel better about oneself. In fact, I was watching a PBS uh, presentation and it had the speaker was talking about uh, the Tao Te Ching. Uh, and the Tao is the way things are. It's just, but he was speaking about it as uh, sort of as a uh, how you can change your disposition towards things. If you don't, if your thoughts are having a perf- particular context and a particular pattern, you can change the way you think and therefore change your presentation and manifestation of the world, which is absolutely true, Absolutely, but it has nothing to do with the Tao. It's absolutely true that we can change our disposition and change the way we feel about ourselves by altering our pattern of thought. There's no question. But that isn't Dharma. Not. That's really just adjusting the different levels of... Uh, it's, it's, it's just a form of self-improvement, really. So much of Buddhism really is self-improvement. And it, again, uh, there are times when... Uh, all we can bring, the only energy we can bring to our practices is some uh, effort to self-improve because we feel so defeated in other ways that, uh, or unsteady in our ability to hold uh, whatever pattern is arising or the conviction and belief within that pattern is so strong. Whatever the reason, all, sometimes all we can do is muster a little energy to to improve. So we um, rearrange things a little bit, and perhaps change our thinking, perhaps bring forth a different state of mind to balance the energies of this state of mind. But let's be real clear that that's not at the heart of Dharma. That's not the Tao. That's not the heart of Dharma. And as I get older, I'm only interested in the heart of Dharma. As I get older, I'm interested in the deepest level of passionate intention within each one of us. I'm interested in the complete elimination and eradication of suffering. And that's a different level of accountability. It's a different level of um, responsibility within this. You should probably all know that because from now on, as I can project my life, however long I live and my teaching within that life, it's only going to get more aligned with that, not less. 
No, it just isn't time. This isn't time. And so I look at a pattern of mind that is so strong in almost every single one of us here in the course of today, and I think, okay, well, let's look at this mind. Let's look at this state of mind, this state I call listlessness. Let's look at it. Let's pull the thing apart like a big cotton ball that seems so impenetrable. Let's just pull it out so that it gets very thin, so that light begins to permeate it. Really begin to make it transparent. Let's look at this thing. Uh, because that's what I was feeling, uh, perhaps projected, but I have taught so many courses that I think it was probably realistic that many of us were feeling that lull of energy, that almost insurmountable object called ourself that we're trying to get over in some way or get through or muddle our way through. But most of us in this room have the experience to know that if we just kind of go through the motions that something will break. But that's not the dharma. We can do it and it will break just as another float will come through the parade. But when that same float arises again, we'll be pulled down to whatever level it takes us again and again and again each time the float passes. As long as we try to manage the energy in a way that offsets the difficulty we're having with it. And this sense of listlessness is, um, to me, the composite of that word has a whole continuum, including boredom and um, uh, the hindrance of sloth and torpor of disinterest, lack of enthusiasm, uh, just a a kind of um, heaviness of spirit. And I think it's really worth taking one of these states of mind and looking at it from all vantage points so that we can really see this thing up close and, and personal. To get to the impersonal, we have to go through the personal to see what it says to us about ourselves, the image that it has, the way that it holds um, such a convincing uh, a feeling about who we are in relationship to when it arises. And so, um, let me just let's just look at this sense of listlessness, if we could. Uh, and one of the reasons that we have a lull of energy when we come in here, and there are several, and I'm not going to take you back to Dharma 101, but let me pass through 101 to get to this next level. And that is that uh, many of us uh, have lived our lives with insufficient sleep. I mean, period. And we don't get eight hours or whatever is necessary because we uh, are so... We, we, we have uh, invested so uh, greatly in our productivity and, and who we are while we're producing in, in the productivity of our life, whether it be artistically or whether it be in terms of uh, work-related production, 
that uh, we uh, burn the candle at both ends. And because we only recognize ourselves or value ourselves when we are producing, when we are driving ourselves. And it's a whole cultural, it's a cultural overlay. Everything about listlessness tonight is really culturally induced. There, I don't think there's another culture. Uh, I can't think of another culture, not even another Western culture, that has this as deeply as ours embedded within us. And one of the things, even at a beginning level class, I say, okay, uh, in order for you to come, you, ca- you came the first class, but in order for you to come back, I want everyone to get sufficient sleep every night this week and for the rest of the time we're together. And it, there's a huge groan in the room because it means really reshuffling their priorities in some dramatic way, if they really take that on as an intentionality. So part of it is just that we have this uh, crest of fatigue and how we have driven ourselves in our life. And then as we uh, move into a slowed pattern, that wave hits us and crashes over us. And we feel the weight of the residue of the fatigue of the weeks or years of, on which we have been running on empty. So that's one of the reasons that we have a law. And may I say that some of us are caught in patterns of that where every job we take, regardless of what that job is, we go at it with the same degree of intentional intentionality. We get overburdened. We... Um, uh, we lose our sense of, of self-valuation, self-appreciation. Uh, we uh, get uh, uh, over-anxious, tense, stressed out. Uh, regardless of the money, the money often doesn't have any factor to do with it at all. Every single time we take a job, this is what we're doing. And why is it that we're not learning about what it is that we are, why we're butchering ourselves is there not a, 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 a point of suffering, of pain here, of psychological pain, in which I am overextending myself to show what, to show something, to keep, to show the world something that I feel like I have to play out when there's this huge deprivation internally? That if I, that only through my actions will I be evaluated or, uh, or appreciated. I don't know, I don't know, but why aren't we looking at that? Because many of us have been in it for as long as I've known you. Then the other, another reason that there's this listlessness and law of uh, within the first day of, of a retreat is because we are learning to pair relaxation with alert attention. And what it has been paired with in the past, relaxation has been paired with unconsciousness, going to sleep. And so we have to retrain ourselves. This is the sort of the mechanics of the meditation. To start making it work, we have to uncouple uh, the sense of loss of consciousness, consciousness with relaxation and hook it to establish a, a firm, conditioned response of alert attention and relaxation of body and ease of mind. And that's a training, fair enough, but many of us have had 
enough retreats here where that should be on an automatic. An automatic. And then comes the big one, I think, and that is our dependency upon stimulation for our aliveness itself. Many of our lives are dependent upon a certain level of stimulation, uh, be it the various forms of media, radio, what's the first thing we do when we get into the car, you know, with our iPods and this kind of intense activity and all of that kind of heightened. I mean, you can always feel it. You can feel it. First thing I feel when I come to a retreat center like this is the is the settling out of the same life. I feel the sanity of the energetic sanity of where we are. And then, you know, it, well, I, it's in reverse when you go back to wherever it is that we live. It just hits you in the face as a cold, hard fact. And how everybody's aliveness depends upon a certain amplification of sound or music or intensity or vibration or responsiveness or excitement. Excitement is so important. And that can't help but have an effect on our bodily bodies and our adrenaline system and ultimately our fatigue. And and but worse, psychologically, we think of being alive in terms of those conditioned amplification, that that conditioned um, heightened sense of intensity. And so when we come here where we have nothing, this is like cold turkey. We've, you know, we've, we all have been addicted to that. Now all of a sudden we're, you know, the, we're here without any drug whatsoever, any media. Not even a cell phone works here. And there's this kind of unplugging quality of where, who am I? What is my life? when it can't be jacked up from stimulation. What is this thing? Because we haven't found ourselves. Most of us don't know who we are without that. And we may have a week or ten days or maybe even a three-month course here and there in which we find out, but only to live the other nine months or 90 years without it. And so... Which weighs in more? You know, when I used to get off of retreat, the first thing I would do is go to a movie, <laughs> just to fill it back up again, to somehow re-stimulate myself so that I could get back into my normal bodily and mental frame of reference. How many of us just allow ourselves to live? See, that, that's what the Buddha was talking about when he was talking about simplicity of life and renunciation of the senses. He wasn't talking about some hardened re- restraint and, you know, of, of making it a difficult life. He's just talking about sanity of being, knowing who we are and living from who we are rather than from the amplification of other external sources. And... Most of us equate, and this is a huge, really, joy with excitement. We think that excitement is joy. 
And so when we can become excited, we equate that as being sort of the peak moments of our life. Those moments that have some value, some true significance are the ones where we're most excited. If if you look at what excitement feels like in the body and mind, it really isn't very pleasant. And as you start noticing the unpleasant quality of excitement, you'll start seeking joy because joy doesn't have that heightened activity level or frenetic quality of activity. Joy is just appreciation of the heart, full-heartedness. We have to show up for life in order to be joyful. We don't have to show up at all for excitement. And another reason that there can be a law, a prolonged law or lifeless energy within us on retreat is because uh, we live uh, perhaps not with the greatest sense of integrity off of retreat and uh, there can be some uh, hard uh, remorse and uh, shame that uh, our life has accumulated along the way and uh, or guilt patterns. And so when we sit down uh, just with our own minds, those shameful events begin to arise or patterns of grief, all sorts of unresolved issues within us. And the duller we make our minds, the less acutely we have to face those patterns. So there can be a kind of like a thud rather than a sharp, crisp focus of what our lives have been about. And so the, uh, the dullness of mind can, be act, can act as a defense against seeing something in sharp image. And this lack of interest is an interesting is is interesting to me. This the sense of um, dullness or lifelessness configures life to be uninteresting. To be uninteresting, and when we're, when life is uninteresting, the the closest we can get to a high within that is for us to indulge, is to seek pleasure, is to be comfortable. Comfortable rather than interested. We seek comfort over interest. And interest, the Dharma thrives on interest. It does not thrive within comfort. But somehow that's, we equate, uh, uh, you know, a sense of, um, of, uh, of just being at rest and at ease with comfort. And we have, we're used, to in our life, having a certain uh, uh, level of comfort that we're not willing to give up, even on retreat. Especially, this is almost like sleeping outdoors and like tents and I mean, outhouses and that sort of stuff. We're not used to that. And so we find ourselves wanting to be more indulgent finding the comfortable spot, the right way to sit so that there's no pain. There's not, no, I'm not facing anything 
uh, sharp or um, difficult. We're really looking to be soothed, aren't we? And of course, that lull of energy, that lack of interest follows suit. This sense of interest is at the core of dharma. This sense of alive attention. And what we try to do here on retreat is to access that part of you that has a curiosity about its own aliveness, where it wants to bring forth uh, its potential. And it feels that the way it's living is not living up to its full, its full potential. And then you get very interested when we see that this is a self-inflicted style of life rather than the, just the fact of what life offers me that we're doing it to ourselves. This isn't some passive of disinterest and law of energy and all of that. That's just not what life is about. And I might as well get on with just the finding the best indulgent place to live. No, it's that we're doing this to ourselves. We're inducing these states of mind on ourselves. And the 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 courage of uh, the spirit begins to rise to that. So if I don't have to live like this, why am I? If this isn't the way my mind has to be, why, why am I letting it be this way? And it, it comes out of, of something that we have up until this point not honored. It doesn't come from uh, a reflective thinking or ponderance. It comes vertically out of our, the cells of our body. And there is a, a lion's roar which is not going to uh, be quieted. And that is what the retreat, if it's used correctly, will lead to. But most people don't use the retreat correctly. We use it for to reinforce the listlessness. We use it to find ourselves ways to self-improve, to be more comfortable, to overcome states of mind, rather than to arouse that sense of interest and curiosity about what the mind is doing to us. And the the problem is that uh, most of us have such anxiety when we have a lull of energy because uh, it resonates deeply within core issues of ourself. Like we all believe we should be vital and alert and attentive and, and the opposite shouldn't be and is not, doesn't have any value in Dharma work. And so when there is a lull of energy, we don't think that's Dharma at all. Vitality was what it's all about. 
kind of acuity, crispness. But what about when the energy just isn't like that? You see, is sleepiness somehow less free? Are we less free when we're tired? Are we less free when there is that lack of energy? Or does it really not have anything to do with that? What is it that's untouched? This is the question that should arouse interest. What is untouched by either the presence or absence of energy? And in the deepest moments in which we feel that kind of of, um, dullness of heart, lethargy of spirit, where we're just trying to put in our time to get through the sitting, to arouse enough interest to say, is there something that is not touched by this state of being right now? Because if we invest in the energy, then we're going to be moved with the energy. We're just going to be moved right into the patterns of sleep and boredom. But if we reconfigure our attention so that it can hold boredom, so that it can hold the very sense of energy itself, then there is a sharp, the sharpness doesn't come from the energy, it comes from the interest in the lack of energy. You see, the heart has its own has its own um, source. And regardless of the different waves and patterns, sine waves of the mind, and energy is certainly one of those sine waves, the waves and the troughs of the day as it unfolds. There's something that's a steady state that does not wax or wane. And that is not moving to that, beginning to invest in that which is holding the energy is not self-improvement because it has nothing to do with the sense of self. It has to do with the willingness to move beyond those patterns which have defined me my whole life. Especially some of these energies that seem to have such a, I have an image problem with, like boredom. Because boredom implies something about me, that's why I have such a difficult time with it. These states of dullness imply something about me, about my ability to meditate, about who I am. And so I'm not happy just being present to those states. I want to change them. I want a new fix. I want a new uh, meditative configuration here so that I can be proud of this presentation in this moment. Something that's quick and alert and attentive and 
So when I go into an interview, I can say, well, I've just had a wonderful retreat. I've been attentive and alert. See, but, but the lack of energy, the lack of vitality, the lack of... That, that holds an image. It, it's, it's something that I fear I might really be if I let down my guard. I might just be boring person. I might be a boring person. If somebody, if I have boredom coming through, well, that might label me as a boring person. Or ordinary. Worse than anything, it's just being ordinary. God. If I'm ordinary, nobody loves the ordinary. The Buddha did. There was a man in the Buddha's time who was uh, not the sharpest knife in the bin. And uh, he, uh, he just couldn't get it. He couldn't do all these different trainings and so the Buddha said, uh, saw what would help open him up. And he says, just take this white cloth and just start rubbing it. And, and so the man just took a cloth and he said, I can do that. And he just started rubbing it. And over time, he saw the cloth become uh, soiled and dirty. And he had, uh, through his uh, previous practices earlier lifetimes uh, been so coupled with uh, change as the ingredient of insight that when he saw the cloth change that transformed his mind and it said that he became enlightened. So dollars in the Buddhist tradition were not somehow beyond redemption. So no matter where we put our intellect, it's not beyond redemption. Because it has nothing to do with the intellect. So am I just average and ordinary? And do the states of mind warn me that that image is activated, that I'm afraid that what I'm seeing here is more fundamentally who I am, just being typical and routine and ordinary and average and and does that incite a kind of rebellion in me to want to become extraordinary and raise my energy level and my vitality so that I fight these energy systems when they do appear? You see, have we ever examined some of these states of listless energy like boredom? Have we ever looked at what boredom is? Have we ever spent some time actually interested in the very thing that seems to be disinteresting, like boredom? What is this? This state that seems to hold nothing, which is waiting for something else to come, because that's the state of boredom. It says this moment isn't worth paying attention to. Let's move on here. I will outweigh this moment, knowing that things will change, thank God. Something will come here that's a little more exciting, a little more vital, which will connect me and thereby release me from this boredom. But boredom itself can be interesting. 
if we can arouse and muster the energy to ask questions about it. What is this thing, this boredom? See, those questions are the courage of the heart. Those questions aren't induced, uh, just a mental question. They're encouraged. They're questions from the heart. What is this thing that seems to confine me to such drab circumstances? This boredom. And not trying to move from that state of boredom to offset its tendency so that I can be jacked up artificially by changing my thought patterns or thinking about, I don't know, whatever it all, whatever. If we do that, we do just do juggling acts in this thing. We never see the truth of each state of mind. Each state of mind holds the truth of freedom within it. Every state of mind is essentially free. And if we don't know that, then we have to go into that state of mind and find its freedom within it. We can't keep searching to counter-persuade ourselves against what this state of mind is saying about us. We can't keep offsetting the energies. Because all we're doing when we do that is strengthening the conviction that there's something true about these energies as they, when they do arise. And there's nothing true about them, period, no matter what. And so when they arise to have that willingness, it doesn't mean that from time to time, when you're tired, you don't stand up. You don't bring forth or rouse the energy to... Offset. Sometimes these energies are too strong to see through. But that's, we know what we're doing when we do that. We know why we're doing them. We're not just believing that we're seeing emptiness when we stand up to counter the energy of sloth and torpor. To, count, to see through sloth and torpor, we have to be steady in our attention not bring anything from the outside in to offset it. To be curious and questioning about it. And in that moment, it's seen through. A friend of mine who has set three-month courses, etc., just to show you how deeply these patterns are ingrained in us, was spending some time and he was he was starting to have uh, like moments of depression and he just started paying attention and he said the next moment it just disappeared. When he paid attention to it, it just disappeared. And he said, well, maybe I tricked myself. Maybe I'm fooling myself. Maybe there really is something to being depressed that I should analyze and figure out why I'm depressed and trace it back to my history and my roots. Am I just fooling myself? It just disappeared. I don't understand it. Now that's after a lot of sitting. And yet the truth of emptiness is given a back seat to the analysis of somethingness. The truth of emptiness is the truth. When we pay attention and we don't move from something, it disappears because it can't be sustained 
except through our movement, through our thinking and making it something. But we're so used to thinking of the mind as being something that we won't allow it to come back to nothing. Its natural state is nothing. If we do nothing with something, it goes back to nothing. It doesn't stay something. And the deepest and most ingrained patterns, wherever they might be, and for us in the West, I think one of the deepest ones is this sense of the lack of vitality. Because so much of our life patterns and who we are, and it doesn't get any better than this, and the commercials and the billboards scream at us in terms of vitality. And if we don't feel that, we somehow feel like we're missing the whole package, the deal. The life as it's supposed to be lived. But energy isn't static. It's not consistent. And we don't have to invest our image within the waxing and wanings of the energy because they, there's a law in energy that doesn't say anything about us. It doesn't say that we're less interesting than the person next to us. It doesn't say that we're more boring We can be free of all that intonation. But everything requires a full-hearted participation. There can be no partial heart here. And if we believe that the image and our need to protect ourselves from the image, then we won't give boredom or whatever might be arising full attention because to give it full attention may confirm our worst belief is that this thing represents me it is me and if that's the case then the last thing I want to do is to pay attention to something I believe in about myself And so we won't give, we'll give it a kind of a side glance if we even give it any kind of glance at all. And therefore we breathe life into it through our aversive response. This lack of intentional focus to see what is really there. To see what is really there. And let it go anywhere. I don't care where it's going to go. I'm opening this book. Just going to let it tell its experiential story. Wherever it's going to take me, it's going to take me. And it'll take me through my images and all my fears. I don't care. What difference does it make? What are we doing here? And some of us, um, you know, have such a, a, a background level of self-doubt that from boredom enters the doubt, you see. The boredom, and so it activates the doubt. And so we say, oh God, you know, with the image of the, I say, well, if I don't try, I can't fail. So maybe I just won't even try. I'll just, I'll give it a good appearance. 
but I won't really give it a good clear focus. I won't give it my full heart. And therefore, if I don't do that, I can't say that I failed because I didn't really try. See, we have to be willing to penetrate beyond the mind's will, beyond what the mind brings forward. We have to be willing, regardless of the parade, the floats as they float through, to hold our gaze steady and penetrate right through to the depth, not be afraid of the implications of any of those states of mind. doesn't matter. They say nothing about me. Make it very simple and very joyful. Have you noticed how joyful a retreat can be? Just participating joyfully in self-knowledge. There's nothing as joyful as that doesn't require the media, doesn't require a video, requires that discovery, that wonder of investigation, that willingness to look no matter what. Those are the qualities that lead to joy. And so I look at the ordinary. If the ordinary arises, I look at the ordinary. If, if boredom arises, I'm not afraid of boredom. It says nothing. In fact, what I invest in is to change everything back to the extraordinary. Through being able to look at the ordinary, it changes into the extraordinary. The mundane changes into the sacred by my willingness just to bear complete attention upon it. To see it for what it is, not for what I believe it represents in me. And that transforming quality of seeing the sacred within all aspects of life connects us to an ongoing wonder, an ongoing joy that permeates every aspect So not to be afraid. In the deepest, most fearful areas of ourselves, those areas where we think we are just not up to the task, it's those areas that we invest with our interest. Those areas that hold the most encrusted sense of our image, our most decrepit belief about ourselves. That's how we make ourselves whole. Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.